to the Scaling Japan podcast, a podcast about how to grow your business from $100,000 and beyond, and beyond in the land of the rising sun. Welcome to the Scaling Japan podcast. I'm your host, Tyson Batino, and we have my mate, Harry Kosato, on the podcast. Harry has enough business and life stories to write a biography. Born and raised in Japan, he has gone from studying at university in England to assisting the marketing for Virgin and Dyson in their market entry for Japan, and eventually creating his own sushi chain in India and supporting Japanese and foreign businesses in Japan. Harry, glad to have you on the podcast, and could you please introduce yourself? Good morning, everybody, Tyson-san, and thank you so much for having me today, ladies and gentlemen, and everybody else. Good morning. So, yeah, thank you so much for this very kind and generous introduction. Tyson, as you, we just spoke, I'm now stuck in quarantine in Ropongi in a nice small hotel and enjoying every minute of it because I can at least have the good food. And, you know, in terms of introduction, yes, I mean, it's a very kind introduction, but it's very difficult to actually introduce Harry-san. People call me Harry-san because it's been actually quite a long journey. I've actually turned 50. And, you know, I actually now live in India, but my wife and daughter live in Singapore. But, you know, the about me is that now, although most of my businesses are outside of Japan, Japan has played a very important role in my journey. And in fact, a lot of businesses have actually started from Japan. And I also help interesting businesses from Japan reach the shores of India, etc. So, yeah, I mean, it's、um, very difficult to kind of know where to start or where to stop. But I must say that your podcast, Scaling, Scaling Japan, is a very interesting one, exactly because everybody is talking about the challenges Japan is facing. Obviously, Japan has opportunities, but bigger challenges、uh, remain ahead. But then I think how it is that you think, act, and also、uh, really tell people about what you can do with Japan. I think that's the story. So that's my three minutes of introduction, if two and a half minutes maybe. But thank you, Tyson san, again. And I look forward to enjoying this conversation with you, with the many listeners. Thank you so much. Yeah, when I was creating or preparing for this podcast, I was like, how the hell can I introduce Harry? <laughs> this is going to be complicated. And I'll definitely have to consult with Harry to confirm the information because、yeah. sometimes is this true?、Mm. You've had a wild journey. So, I guess kind of starting with the Virgin story, I guess, like, how did that get started? And what scaling lessons did you learn helping them with their marketing in Japan? So, I think one of the things about this Virgin journey was that it kind of happened by chance. And I think most of the time, I think things happen by chance. But at the end, in retrospect, you might think about it as destiny, as many Indians think life is destiny and flow. But, you know, it was, Virgin was、uh, trying a number of businesses in Japan at that time. This is the late 1990s, actually November 1998 to be exact. And I、um, answered an advertisement that says, anybody who wants to challenge Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola, send your resume. <laughs> wow, this is great. This is like, what is this? So I applied because they were launching Virgin Cola. And for those of you who remember, there used to be a thing called Virgin Cola where the model Pamela Anderson was one of、uh, the sort of, you know, brand inspirations and the beautiful bottle shaped after the model Pamela Anderson, which was launched also in Japan. But basically at that time had an airline 
Virgin Atlantic, which would fly to London. They also had a Virgin Megastores, which was a $100 million plus business in uh, music retailing. This is before digital music, you know, DVDs, TVs, books, and all of that. And also Virgin Records, and as well as V2 Records, which is sort of music record business arm that Virgin was doing, run by EMI back then. So they were, these were the kind of business, and then they want to launch Virgin Cola. And around the same time, they're also going to learn launch Virgin Cinema. So there's a lot of things that was happening at Virgin at that time. And Richard Branson's strategy, now I should say Sir Richard Branson's strategy, was <laughs> yeah, it's to, important yeah, to get that correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was to sort of, you know, use Virgin Cola as, obviously it was a business uh, to itself, but it was trying to use Virgin Cola to promote the Virgin brand in Japan. So, for example, Virgin Cinemas, which is now back then was sort of a startup business, which actually became quite significant to the point that it was sold to Toho Cinemas in the year 2003. So Virgin Cinemas used Virgin Cola, for example. Virgin Atlantic also served Virgin Cola. Uh, Virgin Cola was sold in, you know, a few hundred thousand vending machines across Japan and in many convenience stores as well. So the whole idea was using the Virgin Cola, which is a challenger brand. You know, you got these big giants, Pepsi and Coca-Cola, and you have Richard Branson on the 23rd of April, 2000, and I think it was 1999 or something, that he came out of a, a vending machine when the franchise partner pressed the vending machine button, and out came Richard Branson with uh, saying, ah, oh, here, I'm going to challenge Coca-Cola and Pepsi. So wow, what an like amazing huge, yeah, yeah. So that was amazing because, you know, I actually got a kind of pound back because it was reported worldwide from Bangkok to New York to London. And, you know, the PR Maverick store version is about sort of creating something bigger than life. So I was the marketing guy on the ground who was leading that Virgin Cola launch. It was a many, I mean, we maybe, you know, Shinjuku Aruta. That's okay, where yeah. we built the, yeah, the built the world's largest vending machine. We pressed the button and from the sort of vending machine as the plumes of smoke gave way, Richard Branson came out and I pulled him out and it was a huge <laughs> PR success story because it was very much a memorable thing. And then, yeah, I mean, ultimately version Cola didn't succeed because of budget and by the fact that, you know, it's not that easy to actually promote Cola, third Cola in the sea of marketing budgets that, you know, Coca-Cola and Pepsi had. But we had a great time. I mean, we also did TV commercials that were shot in Hollywood where we had a very unusual way of promoting cola, which was, you know, somebody burping, a boy burping, you know, which was like, you know, in Japan, can you imagine, <laughs> you know, in the late 1990s, have a TV commercial where somebody was burping. So, no, these are the kind of unconventional, very virgin-like, iconoclastic kind of, you know, challenger marketing ideas that we had. And we did a lot of things. We were one of the first people I think to support Fuji Rock Festival, we did a lot of sampling activities across uh, Japan so that people could try Virgin Cola. So we did a lot of things and a lot of collaborations. We did crazy things like, you know, win a Virgin flight to London for life, you know, for 80 years or something like that. So we got a lot of attention. Uh, those are some hilarious. Like, uh, were there any of the unconventional PR stunts other than the vending machine work very well in Japan? Well, I think that was the biggest thing that we did because that was in April uh, 1999. 
And we did all sorts of different things. We tried to, you know, support events and a lot of sort of music events and uh, support version Atlantic version, you know, mega stores. We did a lot of things, but yeah, I think that was the biggest thing. Do you think they kind of overestimated the power of their distribution chain? So yeah, because Eudora is about sort of, you know, scaling and this, it, I think it's very difficult to say because I think it's all about priorities, right? So what was Virgin Cola? It was a business that was supposed to be a business that was standing on its own feet, but actually it was in Richard's mind, maybe more of a, a marketing support scheme to support his other businesses or to cre you know, create buzz around the other Virgin brand, which was the case in other countries as well. You know, the famous thing was he used Sencha. What is Sencha? The tank in Times Square to launch Virgin Cola or something like that. So just to answer your question, I think, you know, distribution was obviously great that we're in vending machines across Japan, but, you know, it wasn't enough. And, you know, the thing is, you know, many businesses in Japan, some fail, actually most fail, and a few survive. And I think, you know, the other businesses that I have been involved with vis-a-vis diversion -vis in Japan haven't sort of maybe ultimately have remained as businesses. Because, like, for example, unfortunately, Virgin doesn't fly it now to Tokyo. Virgin Megasoles is no longer here because it was sold to CCC, Staya, the chain. And then I think V2, I think it's still around maybe as a record label somewhere. But uh, Virgin Records, I don't think is so active or maybe not active in Japan with EMI. And uh, yeah, Virgin Cinemas got bought over by Toho Cinemas. So yeah, I mean, if you look at Virgin in Japan compared to Dyson, which Dyson is going from strength to strength in Japan. Yeah, Virgin had its heyday in Japan. We had a great time. You know, there was so much buzz about Virgin Cinemas, people going to the first premium kind of business class seating at Virgin Cinemas. People loved buying their CDs and DVDs from Virgin Megastores. It was a huge business back then. Virgin Atlantic, obviously, you could have a massage on your way to Heathrow Airport to London. Virgin Cola, obviously, you can, you know, show your friends that you're different, that I'm not drinking Coca-Cola, Pepsi, I'm drinking Virgin. But Unfortunately, in Japan, Virgin is no longer, but you see, you know, I think Richard Branson is smart. I mean, his focus is not on that now, but on other things in other territories and other businesses, which you have to move on. And yeah, so scaling in Japan didn't really work for Virgin, unfortunately, because of priority. But as you can see, he's uh, now got space travel under his belt. That's starting. He's got other multiple businesses and resorts. He's doing trains. He's doing, you know, internet. He's doing banking. He's doing venture funding. The likes of it. I don't know the list goes on. It's but the Virgin Empire. Japan, yeah. The Virgin, yeah, maybe. Yeah. But the thing is, Japan, unfortunately for Virgin, was, I think, back in the late 1990s and early 2000s, was obviously a very important market. But I think compared to that money elsewhere, which shows their priorities are different. And also the fact that, you know, Japan is not as easy a business, maybe. And, you know, ultimately, Virgin Benefit did when they sold the business to Toho as an exit. And then obviously, you know, when we talk a little bit about Dyson, when I was there from 2003, is now after how many years, you know, 17, 18 years, a hugely successful, hugely multi-million dollar business, if you know what I mean. So it really is an interesting kind of thought. I mean, I still love Virgin. I still love Dyson. And those are two different, very different businesses, which have had different journeys and relative successes. And okay, but what is success anyway, right? Thanks for sharing. So yeah, like the Dyson story next. Yeah, please tell us more. 
Yeah, so that was also a crazy, amazing journey. I mean, I think I learned more working with these, you know, two companies, Virgin as a sort of a, one of the venture companies, the top venture companies, and also Dyson, but uh, completely different. I mean, Virgin's more entertainment, more flash, more, shall we say, PR. And Dyson is to extend that, but I think it's obviously Dyson is a little bit different because it's engineering-based, product-based. It's a very different business altogether. But, you know, if you look at what Dyson's done and what Virgin has done, as I was saying, they have different levels of success in different levels of what success means. But Dyson, when I joined Dyson, like, you know, an amazing journey because I learned so much about product development and the fact that how product is so important. And uh, yeah, back in those days, you know, we would go to Big Camera and they would tell us, you know, Harry, you know, what do you mean, you know, you want to sell a vacuum cleaner that's 89,800 yen, It's like, I mean, and then the, you know, vacuum cleaners back then was about yen, about 10,000 yen, where it's trying to sell a $900 vacuum cleaner. And they're like, are you crazy kind of thing? And, but they actually, you know, I was speaking to a friend of mine in Singapore and we were having this interesting conversation, but actually, you know, what the version was sort of doing in Japan was, you know, attack Coca-Cola and Pepsi or, you know, bring a new idea that they can be a third cola. That kind of is, was crazy. And also Dyson's idea was crazy. But actually now, if you think about it, Dyson is not really seen as crazy, but, you know, ahead of its time. Yeah, they so, created a new category. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think one of the things is I've worked for two of the great giants of British entrepreneurship, Richard Branson, Sir Richard Branson and Sir James Dyson. I think there are these kind of pioneers who sort of, you know, created things that nobody thought was possible. And I think that's really the key. But, you know, we look at version where, you know, the Japan business is now, unfortunately, you know, I don't think there's really anything left as such, which is a pity for me and my ex-Virgin colleagues who used to have worked at Virgin in Japan. But the amazing thing is that all of us have grown up and done and we're doing other stuff in Japan, which is amazing. Because we've sort of learned from the Virgin story and we're really grateful for that. And I think we are contributing in our own small way. But looking at it from Dyson's perspective, I think the fact that they were able to create a, a huge business, I think it's really ultimately because of the product and a superior product. And I think that's tremendously important in a market like Japan. And the secret actually that people really don't know is that Dyson's success is because they really sent engineers to come and live in Japan and actually do the testing and, you know, really, really understand the, the Japanese consumer. So the other lesser known fact is that Dyson, I think, started to benchmark their quality to Japan that they launched their product in Japan and then they started to launch similar products in other territories like the US, the UK, Asia, etc. So I think this Japan has been for Dyson a very, very important and always been an important market, but a market which has actually helped Dyson globally. I mean, obviously, engineering started out of the UK. But I think this sort of demanding Japanese consumer was a very good benchmark for Dyson to create better and more amazing product in and around the world. Wow, that's very humble of them. And I think it's a telling story because nowadays there's a lot more information on strategy for how to scale your company. And usually mm. one of the steps is you have to find product market fit. Then you move on to a go-to-market strategy. So mm. that's very keen of them to focus. I mean, they already had a great product. But mm. they tried to find the product market fit in Japan before they mm. started scaling with their go-to-market strategy. 
it was an amazing launch. And I think it's one of the things a lot of people ask me. It was like, oh, why are you resigning as a marketing you know, manager of Dyson and going to India? Are you crazy? Yes. <laughs> and I was crazy. Oh, yeah. Tell us more about the next stage, India. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think because this podcast is about sort of scaling in Japan, I think, you know, I talked a little bit about the fact that Virgin is no longer here. Dyson is still very much here in Japan and obviously across Asia, Europe and America and doing very, very well. But I think as an entrepreneur, and I've failed a lot of times, many, many times, and I'm sort of so grateful to people who have really helped me along the journey. But what I sort of, what I'm doing in India is actually bringing a lot of these resources, the know-how, the learnings, many different experiences that I have had working with Virgin and Dyson to India, actually. So I think the fact that I've been running a sushi business called Sushi and More, which is now India's largest uh, sushi chain. And I've also done many events promoting Japanese culture and food and art and anime and all of that in big uh, events like the Cool Japan Festival. Actually, I'm taking a lot of what I've learned and what Japan actually has to offer to the world to a country like India, which is a, you know, a young country. But also, as I come back less regularly back to Japan because of the pandemic, I do realize that India is such a big market, if you know what I mean. And I also wanted to work in a market was, that was growing. You know, we have uh, 1.4 billion people in India. So Japan is shrinking and India is growing. And for me, what was amazing and what has been amazing and what will be amazing is that I'm part of the growth. We have a business uh, which is in the delivery business of sushi as well as a takeout business in sushi. And we're the largest sushi in India with only eight outlets. And we believe that uh, we've just celebrated 10 years. But in the next 10 years, I was thinking, okay, going from eight stores to maybe 100 stores. And an Indian investor laughed at me and said, Harry, that's what's your problem. You should not be thinking about 100 stores. Let's think about 450 stores. I know <laughs> that's the sort of growth potential of India. So the sort of my journey has started from, say, when I was a student in Japan in an international school, went to London, Oxford, did my sort of tax journey at Arthur Anderson, which is now Accenture, and then did a business in Bangkok with my wife and I, my partner, and then, and then coming back to Japan, Virgin Dyson, and then India. And now I feel as though, you know, the journey in India has only happened because of Japan. And now I'm looking right now to see if we can bring more things from Japan to India and um, maybe in the future, bring things from India to Japan and scale that too, because there's so many things in India, which is still not in Japan. So I don't know, it's a very difficult question because like, you know, when you look at the sort of where I am and where I will be, I still don't know. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen in the next five minutes in life, um, <laughs> but it's incredibly exciting. It's an adventure. I've been blessed and it's not easy. It's challenging, but I think the sort of, you know, what Japan has to offer outside Japan is as important as what I think you can do in Japan to grow businesses in Japan. And one of the things, the takeaways from your India story is, uh, I think one of the key points for scaling a business is, to be honest, I think probably 80% is just choosing the right idea. And I think a lot of people really, or they get enamored with some idea and they jump into it too quickly. But I like about your India story is that India is a growing market. It's growing fast. There's a lot of opportunity. 
And mm. so because there's a lot of opportunity and because it's a new market, you can introduce things that's worked in other places. There's yeah. so much potential there to create a mm. business that can scale really quickly because it's a scalable idea. True. That's a very, very valid point. And yeah, so I think that's just so for the listeners, that's a, something I see commonly is people consult with me. I want to scale my business, but sometimes it's actually your business idea is not that scalable. Sometimes avoiding to jump into an idea too quickly and just waiting for the right idea to come for that. Well, I think it's if you look at Virgin also, uh, Virgin Cola is scalable. I mean, I think if we still had stuck at it in Japan, I think it could still be doing well. So it's very difficult where obviously what you choose, which is your point, but then if you really want it to scale, how much are you willing to bleed or to persist to keep going until it kind of scaled? Gotcha. Yeah, because I mean, for some of the listeners, I think there will be some country managers, foreign firms who's in charge of the market entry. I'm sure. Actually, I guess with the Virgin and Dyson story, I think one challenge that country managers have is that they really need to find, I guess, great talent to help them do the market entry in Japan. And I guess in your case, uh, do you have any advice for them on how to attract excellent mm. staff to help them with their market entry? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good point. I mean, it's I've just been thinking as you asked the question, because I think Japan is an incredibly difficult market. But I say this because we're working with people who are working in a hundred different markets. Every market is very difficult, whether it's Japan, whether it's India, whether it's France, whether it's Myanmar, whether it's China, whatever the case may be. Everything has its own challenges. But I mean, two things really. I mean, one of the realities of the situation is that unfortunately, Tyson san that I think maybe uh, this is not negative, but the just a pain that we share is that compared to 10, 20 years ago, I think, especially when we look at the foreign talent pool, there's less talent there used to be, I would think, in terms of sort of, I mean, there's still a lot of amazing talent. So don't get me wrong. But if you look at the global sort of, you know, where people are, the people I'm working with in India, for example, versus the people I find here in Japan, there are still some amazing people in Japan, but there's a huge lot of talent when that are going to India, for example, or going to South America, or going to, I don't know, the US, the UK. So I think general managers, country managers who are in Japan will have significant challenges of finding, you know, I think the talent maybe that used to be available, especially foreign talent, who will be able to help them. Now, that being said, the good positive thing that I've noticed in the last 10 years is that there's so much better Japanese talent who have been able to upgrade their skills, have experience overseas or in uh, foreign companies in Japan. You know, there's a lot of good talent on that basis. To find those people, it's obviously finding maybe a recruiting partner or some sort of, you know, scheme where you have a steady flow of good people coming in. But actually, it's building that culture, right, to be able to sort of innovate and to be able to sort of bring new ideas and new paradigm shifts to people's understandings and really, really impact the market and the world, which as managers know, we're, it's all about culture, I think, to build a culture for that change, for that sort of, you know, huge success, if I may say. But the other thing I wanted to say is that running a business in Japan, I think, may be comparatively more difficult now than compared to 10, 20 years ago. And I think I would have to say that it's actually, now I look at Japan, not as so much as a destination market, but actually 
when you look at maybe global businesses as a market from where you can grow from, which is what I was trying to tell you about the sort of Harry to India journey, where he's taking stuff, Harry Sun's taking stuff, I'm taking stuff from here to India or beyond, if you know what I mean. I mean, it's a really tough one because it's still a very you know rich market. I think GDP-wise, Japan is still number three. There's so much money to be made in Japan. There's so much wealth in Japan. The overall standard of living is great. But, you know, there are mixed signals regarding talent, upgrading of talent, Japanese talent. Maybe there's great foreign talent, but it's not as much because, you know, you might be paid more outside of Japan or, you know, they might have better opportunities in India or, say, Singapore or, say, Russia. So there's mixed signals on that sort of, you know, HR front. And as I said, the potential for scaling in Japan still exists for the right product and the right company and the right team. But, you know, the world has changed so much where, you know, I'm stuck in a hotel in Roppongi. So, you know, the new business models will obviously be needed for this pandemic. We can say soon the post-pandemic situation, but it's actually not easy. There's so many issues to think about, to consider, to think about as we go into the future. And I think Japan... From a policy point of view, a macro point of view has so many challenges to face that it maybe has avoided to look at in the last 10, 20 years. That was really interesting that you mentioned that using Japan as a good starting place to mm. start your journey, then expanding outward to potentially, you know, other countries in Asia. And I'm curious, though, like if a company succeeds in Japan, does it have any type of, I guess, credibility when moving outwards or how is that? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a very more? good question. Yeah. So I think there was a, a similar interview or some question I answered, like oh, somebody was saying about does a Japan success. Oh, and I remember a friend of mine who is working in India who's offered the opportunity to work in Japan. And she was asking me, well, this Japan experience going to help uh, me globally once I leave Japan? I said, well, the answer to that is probably yes and no, because the Japan experience is great. I mean, you, there's a lot you can learn in Japan. But I think when I look at like a big multinational company, I think if they had global operations, you know, maybe 20 years ago, or 30 years ago was, okay, send him to Japan for five years. And then, you know, he can maybe go to Asia and then go back to the UK, US in the back in the head office. But now I hear, you know, no, no, don't send him to Japan, you know, send him to India you know, five years or so, and then, you know, send him to maybe Japan for a few years and then kind of send him back to the, so this, in a sense, this, this sort of global kind of, you know, from a hundred kilometers above, you know, these people who are, you know, moving resources and people, they're thinking, you know, there's much more to learn outside of Japan than Japan, but that doesn't mean that the Japan experience is not necessary. I think it's a very important place where you can learn a lot. And I think I'm sure engineers out of Dyson are spending more and more time in Japan. But as you know, they have a huge base in Singapore right now. You know, the world is changing, you know. You know, it used to be that Japan may have been the place for inspiration. It still is, you know. I mean, if you look at people like Apple, Steve Jobs, who came to Japan, there's sort of Japan has so much to offer in terms of inspiration. Still does. Innovation, ideas, you know, it's a completely amazing culture and a country and a, a market also where you can see so many amazing things that you know japan is in many ways so ahead of its time but at the same time there is so much to turn from to africa or now or living in singapore or living in india or elsewhere 
Thanks for sharing that. And I guess my last question would be,、uh, do you have any other advice for foreign business owners in Japan? Maybe some unconventional advice? Any tips to leave yeah, off? I'm not very good at advice, but I would say that comment is that look outside of Japan. You know, a little bit kind of a cryptic answer, maybe, but it's like, you know, what do you mean? I'm a country manager in Japan. And you say, you know, look outside <laughs> of Japan. But I don't know. I think it's either who your listeners are. Are they kind of multinational, national heads, or maybe they're entrepreneurs? I would say the target audience, I guess this question would be designed for some, it's a foreigner, they have a business, maybe they have like two employees. Right, right, right.、And、yeah, then I, as I said,、that. yeah, that really holds true of what I'm trying to say is that trying to use what you've learned or what you're learning or what you have built service wise, product wise, or both, and trying to see if you can use that to a different, bigger market. Because the world's a big place in Japan's 126 million people. There's 1.4 billion people in India. There's, I don't know, X number of, it's a huge world, you know? And I would recommend that because I feel it's great coming back to sushi, eating sushi in Japan. But I find that I take inspiration and a lot of energy from here in Japan back to India. And I think there's much more potential out there than just concentrating on Japan as a market. I think that's excellent feedback. And I think for most business owners, there's going to reach a point where the amount of time and investment that you'd put into Japan after establishing yourself, your growth speed will start to slow down. And、mm. you will have to consider other opportunities or other markets to continually grow and scale your company. Yeah, so that、I、is、agree. excellent advice. Welcome to the end of the podcast. We appreciate you listening to the end of this Scaling Japan episode. And if you would like more great episodes on scaling your business in Japan, please check out www.scalingyourcompany.com forward slash podcasts.